Welcome, 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 people, to Amsterdam Talk, season three, episode 11. And tonight, I bring, you know, a special guest with me. I bring author. Episode 11. Oh. And tonight, and they tell me about feedback, and I do feedback. Episode 11. I bring tonight, I bring profound author and speaker, Miss Kimberly Clark. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, really good. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we get started, um, tell us about yourself. I mean, you know, okay. Well, I'm a books and things in that nature. Okay, absolutely. Well, um, the title of my book is "Stuck Between Pleasure and Pleasing God." Um, it, it's found on Amazon. Um, it's a memoir about you know my life in the Navy, um, as well as enduring a military sexual trauma. And then coming home back to the States, because uh, I was stationed in Guam, dealing with addiction and alcoholism for about 10 years, right? And so um, today I have um, almost two years sober. Um, I'm a motivational speaker, a trauma-informed care consultant, as well as certified peer support specialist, uh, which is a whole bunch of words just to say I help people recover. Okay. Okay, but but before we even get into that, I just wanted to touch bases what's like really big in the news. So um, I guess we could call this a new segment, Brother for Real Current Events. So we'll start the show. So we have here, we have uh, Shanquilla Robinson, who was murdered down in Cabo, Mexico by her so-called friends um, that they said it was supposed to be alcohol poison, but when the when the federalities the authorities got to her they felt like it was trauma you know so basically it was it was a head and, and spine trauma um but the group said that she suffered from alcohol poison and this was the very first day they got down there so i'm not understanding it and basically what i'm gonna say is um how would you perceive that miss clark right there they somebody's telling you it was alcohol poison but there's severe head and neck trauma and spine trauma I mean, I would immediately assume that there's, that's a lie. You know, it was definitely something else going on. I've been seeing a little bit, you know, I've been seeing it all over Facebook, but I haven't really read a, a lot of the facts that go with it, other than the fact that, you know, of course, the report that said it was alcohol poisoning. Um, I seen the video that surfaced um, where she was, you know, fighting and um, she wasn't even fighting. Matter of fact, somebody was fighting her because she, she wouldn't, uh, you know, throw any hits or anything like that. But I would, I would, definitely you know have my ears up um something happened to that young lady and i i hate that it it, it took her life yeah and, and and that's crazy so what it basically says is you got to watch who you call your friends because unfortunately this generation is actually videotaping this fight and knowing that somebody's been physically hurt but if you see a person not trying to fight back just break it up that's plain and simple now if they were fighting right. back and forth that's just something different but one person's not fighting, then you know, it 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 is totally different. But that's what I just wanted to bring out there to those that's watching about that about Michelle Quilla Robinson. But now back to our guest right here. You say that you know you were dealing with uh, substance abuse. What substance were you dealing with? Um, my my drug of choice was alcohol, but I dealt with you know cocaine, crack cocaine, uh, pills, methamphetamines at one point. Um, pretty much anything I could get my hands on, um, except IV, IV drug use. IV drug use. And this was all when you stated at the beginning that you were in the, in the military. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the alcohol started in the military, but the um, the drugs didn't start till I got home. But it was almost immediately when I got home and got a medical discharge. Um, I was almost immediately, you know, introduced to crack cocaine by family members. A family member, a family member. What what city? If we can ask. Oh yeah, I'm I'm completely open and transparent. Shreveport, Louisiana. Oh, okay. You're from Louisiana, the boot. Okay, Shreveport. Yeah, I get it. So you came home. So you said, how many years did you do in the, the service? I did two. Um, you, I, you know what? I wanted to do 20 years, right? I wanted to retire from it. But after the MSC, after the sexual trauma, you know, um, I, I tried to commit suicide and like diagnosed with PTSD and they, they made me get a medical discharge. It was sexual trauma inside the military? Inside the military by uh, an officer, what was supposed to be a friend of mine. So, so this was bought like like rape? Yeah, it was rape. Rape in the military. Okay, mm -hmm. and it was no one you could report. I mean, I guess because it was fellow officers, you couldn't report it? Oh, no, 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 no. There was a report and everything. There was even trial. Um, actually I didn't tell anyone at first, but I ended up telling someone about it, you know, like maybe two weeks later. Um, and that person, which is still a good friend of mine today, he went and confronted the guy in front of everybody in the barracks. Right. And so mm -hmm. that got back to my chain of command and they had to do something about it. And so they started an investigation. I ended up having to talk to NCIS every day for a few months, right? They they had me wear a wire to go talk to the dude to try to get him to confess, um, to confess. They had me call him with the phone tapped to try to get him to confess, right? But that was, uh, he never confessed. He said everything but that. He even apologized to me, but never mm -hmm. actually said, hey, I did this to you, right? And so, and then, you know, there was there was drinking involved, at the at the party and i can only remember flashes of things and so because there was alcohol involved um after the trial process or whatever he ended up getting away with it um the charges were dropped and everything so but yeah there was mm. there was trial there was there was all that ncis and all the works so out of all of that how did the trial end up yeah he, he got away with it he got away with it. Um, at the beginning of trial, uh, like I said, I was stationed in Guam. So after that happened, they wouldn't let me deploy anymore. See, we would deploy for like a few months at a time. And, you know, we would go places like Australia, Thailand, Saipan, Singapore, places like that. But they wouldn't let me get it back on the ship no more because um, I guess the counselor they made me go talk to could sense the suicidality. And so they wouldn't let me deploy. Um, and I ended up, you know, trying to commit suicide. I had a suicide attempt. I took like 145 pills one day, you know, just trying to trying to end it. And um, a friend of mine found me in my barracks and saved my life that night. And not too long after that, they medevaced me from Guam to San Diego. And uh, mm -hmm. that's when my that's when my medical discharge began to begin to happen. Wow. So, okay. So this was all strength from the trauma of this was like, I guess after the trial, when, when the verdict came, you just decided to say you wanted to end it all. 
oh no, this was, well, this was when they found out, like this is when my chain of command found out about what happened. And they knew they had to do something about it. And at that point, I knew that everybody there found out what happened to me. In my mind, I was thinking like they were going to look at me different, that everybody was going to feel sorry for me. Um, I don't know. I just didn't want to be treated differently. And at the same time, like I didn't know how to deal with what just happened to me. You know, I was a virgin. I, you know, when that happened, I, I you know, grew up, um, you know, in the church and the word of God. And I wanted to give myself away biblically. And, you know, that's what my plans were to wait till I got married. And I was steadfast on that. And he took that chance away from me. He took that choice away from me. And so I just, um, yeah, I, I didn't know it. I didn't know what to do with myself. So they, they, uh, they sent me to San Diego. I didn't, like I said before, like I didn't want to leave the Navy. I did not want to leave, but they made me leave mm. after I was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm. So they made you leave. Mm -hmm. So you went, so you were in San Diego. So they sent you back to San Diego. Then they sent you back to Louisiana. Right. Correct. Correct. And so all of this going on from the PTSD. So now you back in Shreveport. So now you're trying, I'm guess I'm not saying you're trying, but I guess you're trying to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, suppress, suppress the trauma. No, that's exactly it. I was, I was trying to suppress. I was trying to cope. I was trying to cope any way that I could, you know, I didn't want to feel the way that I was feeling. Um, but it, I mean, at that point I didn't, mo I didn't know much about drugs cause you know, I, I grew up uh, kind of sheltered, you know, away from mm -hmm. the world kind of, we didn't, we weren't allowed to do parties and stuff like that. And um, yeah, I didn't know much about, about drugs or anything other drug life. Cause I, I, I'm not hood. I'm country. I'm real country. Like I, I grew up in Shreveport uh, for, you know, a few years of my life, but I, I, I'm born and raised in Castro, Louisiana, which is a, a town like we, our population is about less than a thousand people. So that's where I was born and raised. And no, so in um, town, that's like everybody knows everybody. Right. Everybody's related in some kind of way. Yeah. Okay. So you came back, so you, you know, you suppressed it to run away from the trauma. So was it just, uh, um, I guess was the, the member, the family member that gave it to you, he would just say, Hey, try this, or you were curious about it or how did that go? I'm a mixture of both. I came home, you know, from the military, I was broken, you know, full of fear, looking for any way to cope. And I went out partying with, um, my aunt my cousin and my cousin's boyfriend and we ended up in my cousin's boyfriend's house. And so my, my aunt, my cousin, my cousin's boyfriend, they were in the kitchen doing something off of a can. Right. And so mm -hmm. it, and of course I'm a country. I didn't know what they were doing. And the light, the, the house that we were at didn't have any electricity. We had been out all day, you know, drinking, riding, listening to music. Um, and it was raining and I think my cousin's boyfriend had a warrant or something and he was trying to get mm -hmm. off the road. I, it was just this whole thing. But anyway, yeah, we got to that house and they were doing something in the kitchen, smoking something off of a can and I could see the lighter flickering, flickering, flickering. I'm like, what they got going on in there? You know what I'm saying? So I went and I asked my aunt, I'm like, Hey, what, what's that? You know? And she was like, baby, this is crack cocaine. And like the way she introduced me to it was like, you know, she was introducing me to a person 
And mm-hmm. so I had the audacity to ask, you know, can I can I try it? <clears throat> and at first she was like, nah, I don't want no parts of that. But then when she found out that, you know, I had money, it, it was kind of different. And so they they let me um, smoke smoke it off of a can. At first I put up to my nose because I didn't know what I was doing. And it, as soon as I hit the the can for the very first hit ever, you know, I mm. felt numb. I could finally, I finally didn't feel anything. And it was the feeling I've been searching for. And I just, I just felt good. And so I believe, truly believe that I was hooked from the very beginning. And mm. um, yeah, that same night when I was, uh, when the high was coming down, Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember all of this, so this is what people told me that happened. So apparently I had like a knife or a screwdriver or something. I was in the middle of the road. It was like, I don't know if it was a state of psychosis or what, but I was in the middle of the road and the policeman came and, um, you know, he saw me. He was like, you know, trying to calm me down. Like, hey, it's OK. Whatever you're going through, because like I said, it was a small town. So everybody knew that's that girl came home from the military. You know, okay. and so, yeah, I went to the hospital that night and was going to uh, ended up getting out of the hospital um, <clears throat> and starting to look for it on my own. Mm. So now you yeah. basically start looking for it on your own because I guess it is the old saying you, you were still you was trying to chase that high, that feeling that you got that first time in which you probably which nobody ever gets again. So you basically just chasing that that first high, and people think you can get high again like that. You can never get high like that again. So, no. so you leave the hospital. So now you start to go purchasing on your own. So, mm-hmm. what starts to happen once you start to purchase it on your own now? Um, you know, with uh, I knew who to talk to and who not to talk to. Right? I knew, mm-hmm. you know, some people who sold it but would tell my family so I kind of avoid I, I tried to avoid them right and so I would go end up at trap houses um with another cousin because I didn't want to go alone I didn't want it mm-hmm. to be take I didn't want to be taken advantage of right mm-hmm. and I didn't want to feel like an addict Right. So I kind of took somebody with me, I guess, for accountability, protection, and just just to reassure me, hey, but just because you're doing this don't mean you're a crackhead. You know what I'm saying? I didn't want to feel right. like that at that point. But the word got back to my brother. My brother lives in Arkansas, uh, Little Rock, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. which is like a five, six-hour drive. And so he found out. He immediately came home uh, that same night at like midnight that night and did an mm-hmm. intervention with a few of my cousins, um, they did an intervention. You know, he told me he loved me. He didn't want to see me go down that path. He was extremely so mad at my aunt, you know, for introducing me to it. And um, I, I went to rehab not for the first time, not not soon after that, in Temple, Texas. Mm. So yeah. was it just the one time in Temple, Texas? Or it was like, you know, because some people go and they check out and they go back and then they, they just keep going back and forth. So it was just a one time? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I had a 10-year a addiction. I went, you know, uh, to what, about 
maybe 11 or 12 re different rehabs. Uh, I went to mm. psychiatric units at least 34, 35 times. Um, mm. at around the last maybe five years of my addiction, I found myself in and out of jail, right? Um, all directly related, you know, to addiction and alcoholism. There was a uh, man just in and out, in and out. And, and one of the things, the main things that like that kept me bound, that kept me out there was relationships, right? Because right. like I had those, I had some daddy issues growing up. My dad wasn't around. Um, when he was around, mm -hmm. he was always barefoot with a bottle of W.L. Weller. He was always drunk, you know, or drinking. Mm -hmm. And so I had those issues. I had the self-esteem issues, you know, from being called ugly or too fat or too something. So I didn't like me. I didn't love me either. Right. And so I had mm -hmm. those issues. And so what I would always pick people because they liked me or because they showed me some attention. I just, you know, wanted to get love in any way that I could. Right. And so, um, yeah. And so me look for love, wanting love. I went to. Sorry about that. I, I went to um, one moment. So I'm sorry about that. So I went to. Um, OK. OK. So I went, I started going to this Narcotics Anonymous meetings, right? Mm -hmm. And like, I met this older guy. For some reason, I had these things with older guys. Uh, and like for some reason, but because of my dad. So I had this thing with, with older guys, met him. He became my sponsor. And mm -hmm. like, I basically, you know, kind of fell in love with him. Um, he was, at, but like you're not supposed to, a, a female is only supposed to get a female sponsor and a male is only supposed to get a male sponsor. I didn't know that mm -hmm. at the time, but he did. Right? right. So, yeah. So he completely took advantage of that. He completely took advantage of like my weaknesses, my, um, my anxieties, my fears. He took advantage of all of that because, you know, I was so vulnerable and yeah, like he, um, I thought, that we were in a relationship. I had like maybe four or five months clean at this time. I thought we were in a relationship. You know, he made it seem like he we was in a relationship. And then like come to find out, you know, like he was married the whole time. And he would like pick mm. arguments. Yeah, right. He would pick arguments with his wife. So his wife wouldn't come to the meetings when I showed up to the meetings. So we wouldn't meet. I mean, like really manipulative stuff like that, you know. And so... um to, yeah, I ended up finding out he had a wife. I was completely devastated. I was so hurt. Um, I went and called some of the, the other women that was at the meeting, too, you know, mm -hmm. to kind of get some support, to get some help, to get right. to get some support and get some help. And they turned on me. <laughs> like, they was like, oh, no, we don't want to talk to you. I mean, like, he had that much power in the meeting over people. To where, you know, they didn't want to have anything, even though I didn't do anything wrong, right? I was the one that was used and manipulated. You know, he, they chose his side. And so they just took me on an even downward spiral. And over the mm. 10, over the course of 10 years, like, that's what was my downfall relationships. It was always with older men because of those daddy issues, right? And it was always with narcissists or people who were manipulative or people who took advantage of me or used me for money or something like that. It was always in that arena. Mm. 
So you said you were uh, in and out of jail. Was it going in and out of jail because you were doing things to to get the drugs, or you just were just going to jail because you had possession? Um, a little bit of both. Uh, some of it. Uh, one one time was domestic with my ex husband. Mm-hmm. Um, he would uh, kind of he would know my triggers, right? Um, he would, you know, like. At first, it was the love bombing, you know, in the beginning stages of it. Then it was like the, um, the let me see how far we can take her. I remember being about seven months clean when I met him. And I'm telling him, like, hey, I'm a, I'm a totally different person when I'm using it. Like, I don't want to ever be that person again. And I remember him saying, I mean, I want to meet her. I want to meet her. Like, kept saying that. I want, But I thought he was joking, right? There were so many red flags, so many red flags that I ignored because, again, I wanted love. Like, I, I wanted to be wanted, you know? Right. And so, yeah, he was just com- completely manipulative. He would, you know, eventually go get the drugs for me and, and bring it back, um, supposedly because he didn't want me to leave home, right? He didn't, but, he didn't um, use? He was an alcoholic. He was an okay. alcoholic, but, but drugs, no, no. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, we would, he would be, you know, emotionally abusive, calling me stupid and retarded. And I mean, just all these just nasty words, right? Or I've had better than you. I can do better than you. And because he's, he's older, he was 30 years my senior and he had did, you know, 20 years in Angola, right? And so Mm. uh, to him, he was just this, you know, stand up. A uh, guy back in the day or whatever because he used to be a drug dealer and that's what he went to jail for for you know selling drugs and so he was just he was like oh man i used to have all kind of different women way look way better i mean just all kind of stuff feeding into my low self-esteem feeding me like make sure making sure that i know like he's the prize you know what i mean like yeah. i'm lucky to have him i gotta you know keep him around he would do stuff like that also physically abusive, you know, we would, we would fight, um, you know, he would hit me, I would defend myself, there were times I hit him too, and mm. so it, the, the whole relationship was just extremely, extremely toxic, extremely toxic, and then, you know, I, I found out about his sexuality as well, um, at first, you know, I heard, um, I would hear things, you know, in the street, because I didn't grow up in Shreveport, uh, not all my life, mm. But, you know, he did. And I would hear stuff, you know, about him being bisexual and stuff like that. And when I tell you, like, that was the most devastating thing ever, because I'd already felt ugly. I'd already felt like, right. you know, I looked like a man. I'd already had all these daddy issues. I already had all this low self-esteem. And for him to, you know, um, be bisexual and not tell mm-hmm. me and not admit that to me. I felt like, man, do I, you know, do I look like a man? Is that why you want me? Or why is he with me? Is he using me? You know what I'm saying? For money because he, you know, he had like a, maybe a part-time job or whatever whenever we first met. And mm. so that's how low and how bad that made me feel. And when I tell you I've seen all the red flags in the beginning, like all the, the, the femininity and, I mean, just all of the signs were there. But I chose to ignore them. Wow. Well, so, um, so you said he did 20 years in Angola. Right. Okay. All right. So 
how long were y'all married? Seven years. But five of those years, I was in active addiction. Okay. So the following, so two years then, you was, you were sober. Um, actually, not even for that full year, I was sober. Um, but it didn't get, you know, to that to that point until about two years and until to where I was just out there, just accepted it and was like, you know what, this is just how it's gonna be. So I'm guessing, how far did you go um, to go get drugs? Like, how what was the furthest length that you had to go? Um, promiscuity, um, prostitution. Um, I never stole or anything like that. Um, yeah, that's about it. Okay, so, you know, so 10 years go by, so... What was your turning point? What woke you up to say you don't want to do this anymore? Okay. Yeah, so, like, I have two kids. I have a, a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. And, uh... Wait, hold on, before you get to that, were they born during your days, during your addiction days? My son was. My son, my 7-year-old was born during my addiction. Um, my 10-year-old, she was a product of my addiction. Okay. She any yeah. complications with her when she was born? No, I had no complications with neither one of them, and that's only by the grace of God. But but yeah, my son, I was directly in active addiction when I when I was pregnant with him and when I had him. Okay, all right. So mm -hmm. you said you 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 stopped because you, you you had two kids, right? No, not just you know having my kids, but like my kids was with my mom, right? Because oh, uh, and that's that's one thing I'm proud of myself for doing because I knew that I wasn't being the type of mother that they needed. I knew that I couldn't do what they needed me to do. And I knew I couldn't, you know, watch them, like support them, love them the way that they deserved and the way that they needed. And so, you know, I gave my kids to my mother because mm -hmm. I, you know, for those reasons and also because I didn't see an end in, in sight. I, I didn't, I didn't want to stop. And I was honest with myself about that. Cause like I had, I had a desire to have a desire to stop, but the desire, the initial desire wasn't there. But, you know, I, I didn't want to ever put my kids in danger or anything. And so that's, that is one thing I'm very proud of myself for doing, um, for being, you know, honest enough to know that they needed more than I can give them at that time. And so, yeah, I was, you know, back, my kids were with my mom. I was back and forth to come see them in and out of their lives. And I noticed, you know, I, I gave them abandonment issues because right. anytime I would just walk outside to smoke a cigarette or something, they would think I was leaving. Like, mama, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? Where are you going? And I'm like, mm -hmm. and that just destroyed me, right? Because with my daughter, I had her like the first two, three years of her life, um, mm -hmm. even though I was kind of, you know, I guess in and out of addiction, I, she, all she knew was me. Right. And so, mm -hmm. um, but with my son, it was different. My mother had him, but he still knows me as mother. Like I would not be there, but I was there. If that makes any sense. Like I was still in their sense. life. Okay. Oh yeah. I was still in their life on a consistent basis too. And so, um, so yeah, man, I, I just, I was, I was there, but I, I but I wasn't. Um, I got, I got tired of seeing their faces whenever I would leave. 
And I honestly got tired of living, you know, living outside of my character, living outside what I knew to be right. Um, I, I knew that, you know, there was, uh, that God had a calling on my life, right? And I knew that God gave me an anointing. I knew that there was something powerful for me to do. Um, and I wanted to explore that. I wanted to find out what that was because even out, even using, even in active addiction, I got convicted about stuff that other people didn't. Like other people could go, you know, um, like even with the promiscuity and stuff like that, I got convicted about that. Um, try, I could never manipulate nobody, could never take advantage of nobody, none of that, because I got convicted about stuff like that. And I would always be the one getting taken advantage of because I had a heart. And of course, you're not really supposed to have a heart in the game in a game like that. But I did. I couldn't help it. And so I got tired of not being me. I figured out who I didn't want to be. Now I was ready to find out who I did want to be. And so um, at that time, it was what, 20, the end of 2020, there was still the pandemic. Everything was still kind of shut down and stuff. And so I, I knew that I was going to have to quit on my own because no rehab was was really opening, really letting people in. So I knew I was going to have to do more of it on my own than anything. And so that's what I did. I came home to my mother's with my kids for 30 days before I got into a rehab. And I was able to quit on my own and go to rehab. And I started doing EMDR therapy. And uh, what's that? EMDR. It's trauma therapy. Now, don't quote me on this. I think it's eye movement desensitization and uh, reprocessing therapy. It's, um, oh. I'm going to give it like, a, I guess, kind of the gist of what it is. But, you you know, you're with your, your counselor and there's just green light. Um, it's a medical device. It has a green light that goes from left to right, left to right at different speeds. And so they mm -hmm. ask you questions while you're watching that light go, you know, just with your mm -hmm. eyes from left to right, left to right. And you answer a certain series of questions or talk about a certain thing, more than likely a trauma. And it rewires your brain in some kind of way to where you don't be as affected as, or you're not reliving it every time you think about it. Because I was reliving right. stuff every time I thought about it. And it was affecting my life. It was controlling my life. And so EMDR was a game changer. And you talking to somebody that's going to try it. I don't know how many therapies and medications under the sun. I took like 30 different antidepressants, mood stabilizers, anxiety medication, all that, you know, to try to heal. And nothing. What nothing about methadone? Stuck. Methadone? Suboxone. I tried suboxone. Suboxone? Suboxone. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I tried so suboxone. No, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't cut you off. No, no go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I did Suboxone for like a year. Um, and then like I missed one appointment or something. And, um, you know, I missed a group. I missed a group session. You know, you got to go to group sessions and um, the calls and the uh, random urinalysis and stuff like that. And so they completely took me off, like without no kind of help or anything, nothing to help me get, uh -huh. you know, with the withdrawals. And I don't know if you know, but Suboxone has the worst withdrawals. It's uh, for, for to me, it's worse than heroin. Like I went through withdrawals for 20, 26 days straight. I'm talking about restless mm -hmm. legs, body aches, vomiting, um, 
fever, headache, uh, headaches that felt like migraines, just a very horrible um, detox. And so I, I relapsed, you know, trying mm -hmm. to, I called and called and called the VA. I'm like, I need something to help me get off of this. And since y'all took me completely off from missing an appointment, you know, I need some help getting off of this. They they wouldn't help. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't send me anything to help me. Nothing but ibuprofen. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Yeah. So after they said ibuprofen, how did you wean how did you really wean off of it? I got high a different way. <laughs> Honestly, I started drinking again because I was clean, like, mm -hmm. so to speak, whenever I was doing Suboxone. I wasn't drinking okay. or doing crack cocaine or doing, you know, the pills, of course, or the methamphetamines. You know, I was, you know, just, just doing a Suboxone, going to meetings, and it seemed to be working for me. But when they took me off, it was, you know, straight, it was hell to go through that. Yeah, and so... I, yeah, I went and got high another way. When I got drunk, another when I got drunk, and that mm. just put me back out there, put me back out there, chasing it every day, every day, all day. Okay, so now you when when does the chase really end? The chase really ended January third, two thousand twenty-one. So what yeah. brought you to that point? Yeah, that's that's when uh you know the I started you know, wanting to be a mother to my kids. That's when I went to the rehab and started doing the EMDR therapy. Um, okay. That's when I, yeah, that's when I started a meeting down here in my hometown um, because, you know, at first I didn't have a vehicle um, and Shreveport is 50 miles away, right? And so mm -hmm. I didn't have the means to, to try to get up there every day for a meeting. So I started one other than doing some online. I did that. Um, you know, I started saving um, got a vehicle so I can get to where I want to be. I went to, I went and got certified as a Chris Sports Specialist. And um, I per I didn't think, because like I get, um, you know, income from the VA. So technically mm -hmm. I really don't have to work, but I, I don't know what shifted this time. This, this last time something shifted and all of a sudden I want to, I want to walk in my purpose. I want to live doing my purpose every day. And so I went and got certified, you know, as a peer support specialist. And I'm like, you know what? With a background like mine, I don't think I can get a job, a good job at that. And I don't want to work just anywhere. But I applied. And now I work for the state, you know, as a peer support specialist. I work for the Louisiana Department of Health, uh, Behavioral Health at that, you know. And um, even could have got, uh, was going to get hired at the VA as well with a background like mine. And that's, on, that's grace. That's nothing but grace and mercy um, for somebody to, you know, have a, a background and get a state job and federal job as well. And so, yeah, I, I started doing peer support. Um, I started volunteering for Mission 22, which is a national nonprofit who raises awareness for veteran suicide. You know, 22 veterans that commit suicide every day. And, you know, I could have easily mm. been one of those 22. And so I volunteer well, for that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I started so, my business. I'll, go. Oh, go ahead. What's your business? No, go with your business. Go ahead, because I can always come back to my okay. question. What's your business? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's called Motivation from the Heart. It's uh, motivational. I do motivational speaking, um, and I'm rolling out a coaching program January 2023. Mm, okay. So yeah. you went back, so you found your purpose. Now, my mm -hmm. question is, um, 
anybody since you've been working with Mission 22 and all these other peer groups and you started this, your own, uh, your own meetings, has there anybody that you were out there hanging with actually come to you and like stereotype you like, man, you think you're better and all this other stuff? As you know, have you been able to clean up some of the people that you were running with? Oh, no. They, um, some of them, like, they'll hit me up on Facebook or something on Messenger and be like, hey, I'm proud of you, blase, blase. And, you know, I try to have that conversation, but, you know, then that'll be the end of that. They don't really want to hear that at that point. And then other people, you know, um, they, you know, I don't, it's something about when you, Start to walk in your purpose when you start doing the right thing. People don't like to see you doing better than them or they don't like to see you doing better, period. You know, I guess they just need something to talk about. But yeah, some of those people, they didn't like me, you know, exceeding their expectations that they had on me. And so there were some, you know, I was able to plant the seed in. But I mean, I can't, you know. I can't cure people, right? I can only, you know, live by example and show them that there's another way. Okay. So how was the relationship with you and your aunt? Mm, it's okay, I guess. Um, she sometimes still lives a lifestyle that I don't agree with. Um, and so I, I really... It's it's not healthy for me to kind of to be around her. Like I love her, um, I will forever love her. But I know what's healthy for me, and I know what's toxic for me. And she. So you forgave her. Yeah, I've forgiven her. Okay. Absolutely. And and and, and that's a big thing right there because you know normally when someone takes someone down a dark path and they get themselves back on track, they seem to never forgive that person. But that is huge right there that you forgave, you know, because at the end of the right. day, she just entered, you made a choice. She just offered. Right. And you right. made a choice, you know. So, you know, and it just became that way, but I'm glad that you actually have the relationship. What about your brother? My brother, um, I'm the baby of three. And so all of us are super close. Um, and my dad, I have half brothers and sisters too. Um, my dad, you know, the Rolling Stone, but, um, after he, cause he passed, he died from alcoholism and after he passed, they kind of wanted to get close after that. My half brothers and sisters, but, um, yeah, we're, we're getting there, but yeah, me and my brother and my sister, we're extremely close. They're my biggest supporters, my biggest encouragers. My, I have a really, really supportive family, supportive and loving family, and I'm, I'm really blessed with that. So now, how was it when you go outside? Do the kids still feel abandonment, or are they just like, all right, I see you when you come back? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I finally broke that. Yeah, they're like, okay, mommy, <laughs> you know, that's it, and I'm so thankful for that. Yeah, they, they're okay now. They know that, you know, I'm here. You know, I'm not going nowhere. I'm actually like a loving, present, kind, you know, reliable mother today. And I'm so thankful you, for you that. You have full time? Say again? You have them full time now? Yes, yes. I'm with them 24 7. That's good. That's good. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's good. So, so now I'm going to speak about, you know, as far as like 
the books that you wrote, your books? Like, you know, how did the books I, come about? Man, like, you ain't gonna believe this one, but I, I got the title of my book when I was a teenager. Um, you know, God is um, giving me dreams, right? And so I had a, a dream about the title of that book. I've had dreams, kind of like prophetic dreams ever since I was younger. And so I had the title of the book. I knew I was going to write a book as a teenager. And um, it took me all of 2021 to write it. But um, it took me like two months to write an outline for it. But mm-hmm. after that, the yeah, the other 10 months I was writing it. But yeah, I, I always knew I was going to write a book. And in 2021, when I finally, you know, got sober and I knew that this was going to be the last time. I knew it was time for me mm-hmm. to tell my story, for me to speak my truth. Oh, well, you never told, I know what the name of the book is, but you never told the guests what the name of the book is. My bad. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it is. I, I just put it up yeah. on the screen. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, it's stuck between pleasure and pleasing God. Okay. Okay, and it's on Amazon, yeah. correct? It is on Amazon. Amazon. Born to Noble as well. Okay. All right, so yeah. you you wrote you you dreamt of the book as a teenager, so you wrote the book less mm-hmm. than well almost two years because it's almost twenty twenty three. Damn, this year didn't flew by. <laughs> yeah. It's almost twenty twenty three. So it's been two years now. So um, the book is out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think what I want to say about. Is it anything about like you you you're telling your truths in there, but is there any like a part two possibly could come out of this? Yeah, yeah, I'm um I'm actually almost finished with uh writing my second book. It's about it, it's not really, you know, a memoir. It's it's a self-help spiritual kind of book. It's it's about your mindset. It's about, you know, changing our perspective, thinking, you know, in a positive light and thinking about solutions, right? Cuz man, if whew, I want people to heal, I didn't know the power of healing. Man, and, and the only way that I healed was, you know, facing those traumas, starting from childhood all the way, you know, to teenager, military, even as an adult in active addiction. I had to heal those things that were bringing me down, that were keeping me sick, that were keeping me bound, that were keeping me in a life I didn't even want to be in. So there were times out there when I was getting high, when the high wasn't even high. You know, and the, the drugs, you know, weren't even good. I had people poison the drugs I was using. I mean, their whole lifestyle is just dangerous in itself, especially for somebody who didn't grow up in the hood who don't know the game. So the, it was just completely dangerous lifestyle. And, yeah, I I want people to heal. Definitely want people to heal. And it starts with our mindset. And so that's why I wanted to write another book about mindset, something straight to the point, not that long. It just, you know, it, it has different areas about, you know, how we change our mindset, how we change the way we think about things. Now, how do you do that? How do you change the way that you think about things? Well, it starts with how we look at ourselves and how we see ourselves. Like how we see ourselves is really how we how we view the world. And so we start on that inner work and start working on us as, as a people, right? Me as a woman, you as a man, then we can start building from there. You got to always start with a firm foundation. And the foundation is us, our inner work. When we start changing us on the inside, all this stuff, the way we view things will be so much better in a more positive light. And we'll be able to build and, and, you know, grow and heal. Well, okay. You say that change your mindset, but then the thing is um, with that as well, 
you got to change your circle sometimes as well. Because mm-hmm. like you said, probably maybe about five minutes ago, um, mm-hmm. one of the biggest things, people don't want to see you do good. Well, people don't want to see you. They want to see you do good. They just don't want to see you do mm-hmm. better than them. That's really the whole thing, the point of case it is. Right. So like you have to remove those from around you. Mm-hmm. That's true. Nature. And you say also your mindset with it. Like, how would you tell with you being where you are now and you being a self, self-help mm-hmm. and helping others, how would you tell someone how to face their own demons? Well, I know that, <clears throat> like, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a clinician, right? But the way that I face mine is, you know, EMDR therapy, also talk therapy. Um, one thing I can help with, you know, is like journaling and also, you know, just um, kind of using the skills and the knowledge that, that that I've learned. And the major part of, you know, my healing and my growth is being honest, being open-minded and being willing, right? It's not some, you know, magic thing that, that helps us heal, right? It, it's, right. it's work, it's inner work. Um, but we have to be willing to be honest to do that work um, and face those things one at a time. Well, you said probably the most dangerous word people are scared of work. Work, <laughs> right. Know, it, it, no, I'm not saying like work as in far as to go to go to work and get have a job, but as far as like work, because if you put in the work, the work is going to take care of you. That's what I believe. Like mm-hmm. if I put in this work, is gonna is gonna is gonna take care of me at the end. So you know, but a lot right. of people what they see these days is they see the finished product. They don't really see mm. what goes behind the scenes. And somebody who may not know you, and if I just sat here through this story, I mean, I just sat through the story. But if I met you personally, and you would say, "Yeah, mm. I've been two years clean," and I probably be like, "Oh, okay, you just stopped." Not from you, just mm. what you telling me from ten years that I tried, I went back, I tried, I went back. So the work was mm-hmm. being done and you, like you said, you, you were in the game and you had a heart and you right. can't have a heart in that game. Right. <laughs> it's cutthroat. <laughs> it is. It's, it, it is. It's cutthroat at all time. Brothers yeah. will turn on brothers. Best friends will turn on best friends. I mean, it's all about mm-hmm. what is over with. And, you know, especially right. when money's involved. Mm, you know, yeah. I'm pretty sure you've yeah. probably seen some crazy shit out there between people yes. that you thought were probably the best of friends. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man. But yeah, it's, it sounds like it's a, it's a, it was an, it's, well, it was an incredible journey from what I listened to, you know, and I'm definitely proud of you myself mm-hmm. that you were actually able to, you know, rise from the ashes like the Phoenix, you know, yeah. so thank you, definitely, you know, have to build your relationship back with your children, you know, wipe that anxiety away from every time you hit the door they're like okay right. you know you're coming back and you forgiving your aunt and now you're out helping others and this is truly a success story from that i forgot the name of your town yeah. but you said it's very small but it's 50 miles from caster Freeport. caster yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry right. it's normal yeah so you, you've been speaking motivational speaking where have you spoken at Oh man, I've done uh, some things. I've done it. New Life Recovery was my very first one. I spoke at a moral injury symposium um, in Houston, Texas. Um, I've spoke at the Goodwood Library in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, spoke at a few churches in Shreveport. Um, I've done plenty of podcasts, a few uh, TV interviews. I started 
you know, my speaking journey back in August this year after doing a recovery speakers course. Mm -hmm. And since August, I've done 17 different, you know, speaking engagements, podcasts, interviews, TV appearances, things like that. And so now, you know, now I also work um, uh, as an affiliate with the recovery speakers course to help other people tell their recovery story. It's, it's a course completely for people in recovery to sh to learn how to package their message and tell their, their story powerfully. Mm, that's definitely, right. that's definitely so, so now you, you found your purpose. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and it feels great. You know, this could, I mean, is, so what would you tell somebody that just, just started, just started getting high, um, just started getting high? What would you tell them? That the the very first high that they got was the last time they would ever feel like that. Um, they'll, they'll never, you'll never get that high again. Um, after a while, you don't even get high anymore because you know you're thinking about all the things that you could be doing, you should be doing. Um, but instead, you're getting high, you're missing life. Life passes by so quickly especially when we're getting high because we meet the wrong people, some people who do not care about us, no matter what they say or do. They do not care. The people who give us the drugs don't care about us at all. They don't even care about themselves. And so the, the life of getting high, you know, and getting drunk just to function, even though it's kind of, you know, glorified and glamorized, it's not the life none of us were meant to live. It, it, it takes away from who we truly are our power, our worthiness, you know, the, the wonderful, fearfully made people that we are. And so getting high will not help you grow. It won't help you heal. It'll only make you stagnant. And there are people who love you and you are needed on this in this world. And the world is waiting on you. So it's, it's not worth it, but you have to make a decision that you're not going to go down that path. Because I know you've heard more than one terror story about addicts, about, you know, crackheads, if you will, about alcoholics, whatever you want to call it. I know you've heard other stories and it all ends the same, either jails, institutions or death. So you got to choose not to even go that route. Mm. That, that, that sounds very well. That definitely sounds good. But um, definitely, I thank you for coming and explaining your story to us. Thank and you for having me. That's an honor. Oh, man. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an honor for you to come. And I'm hoping somebody purchased it. I mean, well, somebody's going to buy your book because I'm going to get it as well. Uh, that's on Amazon. Awesome. And you said it's in, where else it is again? Uh, Barnes & Noble. Barnes and Nobles. The book is called Stuck Between Pleasure and Pleasing God by Miss Kimberly Clark. And yeah, the hard part yeah. is, and this is a sidetrack of it. I have a, well, rest her, rest her soul. And when you sent mm -hmm. it early and I'm like, my eyes will deceive me because my aunt's name's Kimberly Carter. Oh, and wow. when you sent me the message, I'm sitting here like, I know my aunt just, I'm like, my aunt, no, this ain't my aunt. You know, email side and she's looking <laughs> back at it like, hold on. Like wow. this says Clark, my Carter, and I just thought about it. And the same thing is, you know, she went down that same road as you went down. Mm, and wow. in and out, in and out, in and out. And like you said, is um I'm 
she's been gone for 12 years now. So it's been, um, it's been yeah, in the same room. Basically, I'm, I'm a finish. I'm a stop. I'm a, I'm a stop. I'm a stop. But eventually, like you said, there's only two ways. And we wound up burying her on my 28th birthday. Mm. So, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. 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 It was um, cocaine. Crack cocaine was found in her system when she passed away. So yeah. um, that was definitely um, that one. So that was just a thing I thought about early. I'm like, wow, this is this is like crazy right here. You're telling yeah. the story, and, and basically y'all y'all last name are separated by a few letters. Right, right, yeah. Right. Wow. So, but this is the part of the show where everything goes crazy right now. I don't know if you you watched <laughs> the show when I sent you the interviews. Um, the yeah. part that's called I Be Damned. <laughs> this is where <laughs> oh, Lord. We, we, have a, <laughs> we have a story from the gas station today. <laughs> so, it start, this starts at a gas station down in North Carolina. So she says, so I met this guy at a gas station. Yes, the gas station, and we hit it off. Exchanged numbers and carried on phone conversations for the next few days. He, he soon popped the question. That means he asked me out on a date, which I happily accepted. The day prior to our first date, he calls me and says, how would you feel about going Dutch? I said, oh, I've never been to a Dutch restaurant. <laughs> Sounds exciting. <laughs> Secretly, secretly hoping he didn't mean what I thought he meant by the question. <laughs> he then went on that went on to clarify that he deemed it unnecessary for him to pay for the entire date because if later on down the line we decide that we don't like each other, I will not have wasted my money. He then went on to say that he's developed a lot of long-lasting friendships by going Dutch. Duh, you moron. I'm not a gold digger or money hungry. However, if you ask me out, you pay. That's the rule. Needless to say, we never went out. I do not want to date a cheap-ass man. (laughs) (laughs) That's how she ended it. And this is one of the stories that I say I have to agree with because I feel like whoever asks should pay. I agree, 100%. Yeah, so, um, but like I said, when I started reading, when he said he wanted to go to go Dutch, I'm like, she said she thought it was a restaurant. I'm like, oh, boy, this is get ready to go left. But it didn't go as left <laughs> as I thought it would. Right, um, right. But, you know, but the, but you could have went. I mean, you didn't have to do nothing that big. You could have had a quick meet and greet at a Starbucks or something in that nature. Didn't have to yeah. spend all that expensive money. Yeah, it just depends on the situation. Like, I don't know. It depends on the situation. Like, I I do agree. You know, if you ask somebody out, then yeah, of course, you know, treat them because you ask, right? But just certain situations, like, okay, you know, let's let's go half. Let's let's you know. But I don't know. Ninety nine point eight percent of the time, no. If you ask, you're paying. Yeah, that's how I feel. If you ask, you pay. And if you, and if you know you can't pay, don't ask. <laughs> right. But other circumstances do happen when you get to the restaurant where though you may ask, but the other person will be like, you know what, yo, you paid for the last one. I got this one. Or something else may just happen. Or they may just say, yo, I'm, I'm, I want to help you out. You pay for this. I'll pay for drinks. You pay for the meal. I'll leave right. the tip. It can go many other ways, but that's just how I feel. If you pay for it, if you ask, you should pay for it. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But but once again, thank you for coming. Um, and for those that's out there listening, tell them where they can find you at Miss Clark. All right. We need to speak go to. to all right, you just go to um, www.kimberlycares.info. Um, all my in- contact information, all my um, uh, booking information, my book, everything is on their website. So I hope to hear from you guys soon. And thank you again for coming through Amsterdam Talk and sharing yes. your story on sharing your story. So I hope to touch somebody out there and they reach somebody to stop doing what they're doing and get themselves right, you know. It's almost 2023, you gotta get yourself right. As, as they always say, don't let God find you. Mm. <laughs> Old folks always I say, love it. you better find God, don't let him find you. Yes, On indeed. That note, we'll be back next week at eight o'clock, is the holiday season, and I know some, some of you will be around your loving family and your grandparents. Some of them may be suffering from Alzheimer's. So next week, we're bringing Alzheimer's awareness. We have someone talking about a disease that nobody talks about, really. Mm. So see y'all next week at 8 o'clock for Alzheimer's Alzheimer's awareness. Um, thank you, Ms. Clark, and, and that's it for tonight. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, man. I had a blast. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming through. All right. All right, brother, you can cut it.